Hello my friends, this is Nikki. Thank you for joining me today. Today we're going to have a look at Jesus' first lesson in carpentry from his father, Joseph. He's just a small child, only about five years old, and they have returned to Nazareth and are back in their company of their family and friends, uh, living in the small house that uh, Mary was conceived in. And we begin with seeing Jesus as a small child, about five years old, completely blonde and most beautiful. Oh, I should mention that we are reading from the poem of the man-god, Maria Valtorta, Volume 1. Jesus is wearing a simple blue tunic, and he is playing with some earth in the little kitchen garden. He makes little heaps with it, and on top he plants little branches as if he were making a miniature forest. With little stones he builds little roads, and then he would like to build a little lake at the foot of his tiny hills. He therefore takes the bottom part of an old pot and fills it with water. But the pot leaks and he wets his tunic, especially his sleeves. Joseph appears at the door and for some time he stands, very quietly, watching the work of the child and smiles. It is a sight, indeed, that can make one smile happily. Then, to prevent Jesus from getting more wet, he calls him. Jesus turns around, smiling, and when he sees Joseph, he runs towards him with his little arms stretched out. Joseph, with the edge of his short working tunic, dries the little hands which are soiled and wet and kisses them. And then there is a sweet conversation between the two. Jesus explains his work and his game and the difficulties he met in it. He wanted to make a lake like the lake of Genesaret. He wanted to make a little one for his own delight. This was Tiberius, there was Magdala, and over there Capernaum. This was the road that took to Jerusalem, going through Cana. He wanted to launch some little boats on the lake. These leaves are boats, he says, and he wanted to go over to the other shore, but the water runs away. Joseph watches and takes an interest as if it were a very serious matter. He then proposes to make a small lake the following day, but not with an old cracked pot, but with a small wooden basin, in which Jesus would be able to launch small, real wooden boats, which Joseph would teach him how to make. Just then he was bringing him some small working tools suitable for him, that he might learn to use them without any fatigue. So I will be able to help you, Jesus says, smiling. So you will help me and you will become a clever carpenter. Come and see them, says Joseph. And they go into the workshop. Joseph shows him a small hammer, a tiny saw, some very small screwdrivers, a plane suitable for a doll, which are all lying on the bench of a budding carpenter, a bench suitable for little Jesus's size. See, to saw, you must put this piece of wood like that, you then take the saw like that, and making sure that you do not catch your fingers, you start sawing. Try, says Joseph. And the lesson begins. And Jesus, blushing with the effort and pressing his lips together, saws the piece of wood carefully and then planes it. And although it is not perfectly straight, he thinks it is nice. Joseph praises him, and with patience and love, teaches him how to work. Mary comes home. She looks in at the door. Joseph and Jesus do not see her because she is behind them. 
She smiles, seeing how zealously Jesus is working with the plane and how lovingly Joseph is in teaching him. But Jesus must have perceived her smile. He turns around, sees his mother, and runs towards her, showing her the little piece of wood not yet finished. Mary admires it, and she bends down to kiss Jesus. She tidies up his ruffled curls, wipes the perspiration on his hot face, and listens with loving attention to Jesus, who promises to make her a little stool so she will be more comfortable when working. Joseph, standing near the tiny bench, with one hand resting on his side, looks and smiles. Jesus speaks to us, and he says, This was a vision of my childhood, which was happy in its poverty, because it was surrounded by the love of two saints, the greatest the world ever had. They say that Joseph was my foster father. Oh, if being a man he could not feed me milk, as my mother Mary did. He worked very hard indeed to give me bread and comfort, and he had the loving kindness of a real mother. From him I learned, and never had a pupil a kinder teacher. I learned everything that makes a man of a child, and a man who is to earn his own bread. If my intelligence, that of the Son of God, was perfect, you must consider and believe that I did not want to deviate from the attributes and attainments of my own age group ostentatiously. Therefore, by lowering my divine intellectual perfection to that of a human intellectual perfection, I submitted myself to having a man as my teacher and to the need of a teacher. If I learned quickly and willingly that does not deprive me of the merit of submitting myself to man. Neither does it deprive the just man of the merit of being the person who nourished my young mind with the ideas which are necessary to life. Not even now that I am in heaven can I forget the happy hours I spent beside Joseph, who, as if he were playing with me, guided me to the point of being capable of working. And when I look at my putative father, I see once again the little kitchen garden and the smoky workshop, and I still appear to see Mother peep in with her beautiful smile which turned the place into paradise and made us so happy. How much families should learn from the perfection of this couple who loved each other as nobody else ever loved. Joseph was the head of the family, and as such his authority was undisputed and indisputable. Before it, the spouse and mother of God bent reverently, and the Son of God submitted himself willingly. Whatever Joseph decided to do was well done. There were no discussions, no punctiliousness, no oppositions. His word was our little law. And yet, how much humility there was in him! There never was any abuse of power or any design against reason, only because he was the head of the family. His spouse was his sweet adviser, and if, in her deep humility, she considered herself the servant of her consort, he drew from her wisdom of full of grace, light to guide him in all events. And I grew like a flower protected by vigorous trees, between those two loves that interlaced above me, to protect me and love me. No, 
as long as I was able to ignore the world because of my age, I did not regret being absent from paradise. God the Father and the Holy Spirit were not absent, because Mary was full of them, and the angels dwelt there, because nothing drove them away from that house, and one of them, I might say, had become flesh and was Joseph, an angelical soul freed from the burden of the flesh, intent only on serving God and His cause, and loving Him as the seraphim love Him. Joseph's look. It was as placid and pure as the brightness of a star unaware of worldly concupiscence. It was our peace and our strength. Many think that I did not suffer as a human being when the holy glance of the guardian of our home was extinguished by death. If I was God, and as such I was aware of the happy destiny of Joseph, and consequently I was not sorry for his death, because after a short time in limbo I was going to open heaven to him. As a man I cried bitterly in the house now empty and deprived of his presence. I cried over my dear friend, and should I not have cried over my holy friend, on whose chest I had slept when I was a little boy, and from whom I had received so much love in so many years? Finally, I would like to draw the attention of parents to how Joseph made a clever workman of me, without any help of pedagogical learning. As soon as I was old enough to handle tools, he did not let me lead a life of idleness, but he started me to work, and he made use of my love for Mary as the means to spur me to work. I was to make useful things for her. That is how he inculcated the respect which every son should have for his mother, and the teaching for the future carpenter was based on that respectful and loving incentive. Where are now the families in which the little ones are taught to love work as a means of pleasing their parents? Children nowadays are the tyrants of the house. They grow hard, indifferent, ill-mannered towards their parents. They consider their parents as their servants, their slaves. They do not love their parents, and they are scarcely loved by them. The reason is that while you allow your children to become objectionable, overbearing fellows, you become detached from them with shameful indifference. They are everybody's children except yours, O parents of the twentieth century. They are the children of the nurse, of the governess, of the college, if you are rich people. They belong to their companions. They are the children of the streets, of the schools, if you are poor. But they are not yours. You mothers give birth to them, and that is all. And you fathers do exactly the same. But a son is not only the flesh. He has a mind, a heart, a soul. Believe me, no one is more entitled and more obliged than a father and a mother to form that mind, that heart, and that soul. A family is necessary. It exists and must exist. There is no theory or progress capable of destroying this truth without causing ruin. A shattered family can but yield men and women who in future will be more perverted and will cause greater and greater ruin. And I tell you most solemnly, 
that it would be better if there were no more marriages and no more children on the earth, rather than have families less united than the tribes of monkeys, families which are not schools of virtue, of work, of love, of religion, but a babel in which everyone lives on his own like disengaged gears which end up breaking. Broken families, you break up the most holy way of social living and you see and suffer the consequences. You may continue thus if you so wish, but do not complain if this world is becoming a deeper and deeper hell, a dwelling place of monsters who devour families and nations. If you want it, then let it be so. I think here that Jesus is reminding us that family life takes a lot of very hard work. Anyone can be a mother or a father, but only people who work very, very hard can be a good mother and a good father. And after all, you want to raise very good children, very good members of society. You want to see honesty and integrity and hard work and kindness and patience and love amongst your children, as children and as adults. It takes a lot of effort to raise a child. A lot of times when you feel tired and annoyed and angry, you just wish you could run away and find peace. But that's part of childhood. That's part of parenthood, growing and learning together. I think the example that the Lord is showing us of how much love and patience and kindness he grew up with, with Mary and Joseph, is a really good example for us to learn from in our own homes. We can treat each other better, with more patience, with more love, with more understanding. I'm talking about the spouses, the husband and the wife. And from that basic relationship of kindness and respect and trust grows a relationship of love and kindness and respect and trust with our children, listening to them, communicating with them, letting them know they are of value, that what they think and feel and say is heard by you. And that opens them up to listening to what we think and feel and have to say in our wisdom in the years that we've gained through our toils on this earth, that we can help them with their own problems and their own struggles. And I also think it's a very good example of showing how a child must learn respect for its parents, not through violence, not through hardness, but through discipline, through strictness, through learning that, yes, there is a way that we speak to each other, there is a way that we communicate, there's a way that we behave, and those standards must be met by ourselves, with each other, husband to wife, and between our children, and between the children's relationships with each other. Set limits, set standards, and tell them they must not go past certain limits. For example, name-calling is very degrading, and today I hear kids calling each other names. This is not healthy. It diminishes the child who's being uh, harassed and bullied, and it gives a sort of uh, negative power to the one who is doing the name-calling. 
In my family, we set limits, and you cannot call names when you're angry with each other. You can say, I'm really angry, and that's okay. But that's not the same thing as calling someone stupid or ugly or other curse words. So I'm just speaking from the heart as an example to remind you as mothers and fathers, as children, that to have a harmonious family, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of patience and the payoff is so, so worth it because you'll have family whom you love, whom you trust, whom you feel safe with. You will have raised children who are responsible, who know there are consequences for their actions, who are loving and giving and dependable. And these are the kinds of people we need in our world, not irresponsible, lazy, idlesome, uninterested people who are selfish. We need people who know they work in a community, the family is a community, and they can bring that openness and that willingness to work well with others when they go out into the world. Well, I thank you for joining me for episode 21, and I ask you to please come back for episode 22. Thank you so much. Go with God.